Welcome to the Weave Podcast. My name is Sarah Resnick, and I'm the host of this podcast and the owner of the online weaving yarn shop, Gist Yarn and Fiber. This podcast episode is sponsored by Tian Chu of Warp and Weave. Color in weaving can be frustrating. We all know that. Sometimes a beautiful palette of yarns will weave into a gorgeous project, and sometimes they'll weave into mud. The exact same colors! As a result, you may have had color disasters. I know I have. And to avoid these disasters, you may have limited yourself to boring colors or project recipes. But maybe it's time to break out, to master color so you can design gorgeous cloth in the colors you really love. At Warp and Weave, you can learn about color from Master Weaver Tian Chu, featured on Weave podcast episode number three. Tian's episode, All About Weaving with Color, is one of our most popular downloaded episodes, and I've heard from so many of you about how Tian has helped you become more confident with color. So I'm thrilled to wholeheartedly recommend that you go to warpandweave.com slash podcast to sign up for Tian's free online mini course about color and weaving. You'll also find out more about Tian's in-depth online courses about color and weaving there. So let go of your color frustrations. Learn how color works at warpandweave.com slash podcast so you can confidently design gorgeous cloth in the hues you love. Hi, everyone. I can hardly believe that we're reaching the 45th episode of the Weave podcast today. I'm so honored that 45 weavers and artists have shared their stories with all of us, and I'm excited about all of the plans LaShawn and I have for this little podcast in the coming year. I'm hopping on before the episode today to ask if you are a regular podcast listener and this podcast brings happiness to your life, if you would consider signing up as a monthly supporter for $5 or $10 a month. You can make a one-time or monthly donation by going to www.gistyarn.com slash podcast and clicking on the donate button. And to all of you who have been giving, I so appreciate your support. Thank you. Now I'm going to turn it over to LaShawn for this week's episode. Hello. Welcome to Contextualizing Textiles. This week on the podcast, I'm talking with Angela of Fiber Evolution. Fiber Evolution is a C2C producer of high quality organic bast fiber, yarn and cloth born of regenerative processes, sustainable systems, carbon farming practices, regional manufacturing, and community education. In our conversation, we talk about the history of growing and producing flax for linen in their region and how they hope to revitalize the industry. Hello, Angela, and welcome to the Just Yarn Podcast. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Great. Thank you for having me. Can you start out by telling us about your background and your project with Fiber Evolution? Yeah, we... We started a few years ago, and I met uh, Shannon Welsh, who's my business partner in this venture, um, through her work with Fiber Shed, which you probably know is uh, based down in California, and they have affiliates all over the globe right now. And she's the um, director for Pacific Northwest Fiber Shed. And she was doing producer videos of uh, fiber people and farmers all over Oregon, and I saw her website and was very interested in um, discussing fiber flax with her to see if she wanted to visit our farm and see um, that that side of the production, because there isn't anybody else growing 
Fibroflax in Oregon specifically for linen. So uh, we got together and, and uh, have been working uh, for the last couple of years trying to revive the linen industry in Oregon through many different channels. But um, specifically on my farm, we were growing uh, flax from some seed I got in, I think it was BC, several years ago. And, and I also, I have sheep and wanted to, wanted to have another fiber that was, um, it was more for summer wear, you know, mm. <laughs> although wool, wool can be for summer as well. But, uh, but I felt like, um, it would be nice complement to the, um, the sheep that we already had on the farm. And so I investigated whether or not we could grow fiber flax here. And it is a perfect, uh, climate and area for it. And then that sort of set us on the path of, um, of actually doing a much larger project, incorporating several different farms and, and lots of other people um, to actually revive the industry here. And what exactly is the climate in Oregon that makes it great for flax? It really likes a cool climate with uh, cooler mornings, a little bit of fog and high dew point. Um, very similar to the coast in France, like around Normandy, which is pretty much grows the best flax, highest quality flax. Also, Ireland grows really great flax as well. And all of those, um, those climates are kind of uh, wet, <laughs> lots of Ooh. rainfall, uh, cool summers. And, they, um, and it allows the flax to develop slowly. So the fiber content and the quality is kept consistent throughout the growing season. And it doesn't, um, it doesn't really like drought conditions. And it doesn't like it too hot. So I guess um, the 45th parallel all the way around the world is is good flax growing. Hmm, interesting. And is there a history of flax in the Pacific Northwest? There is. There's a very long history of it here. Um, we once immigrants came over on the Oregon Trail, like um, the Russians and Germans brought flaxseed with them, specifically because they were growing it in their home countries. And, uh, and then planted out plots here. And starting from probably the 1840s on, um, there's been a small flax, like for linen production uh, economy happening in Oregon. But it didn't really get to a commercial level until the turn of the century. And that was, um, you know, the late 1900s or so. There was, there was a oil seed mill here and um, they would take the the uh, waste byproduct from pressing oil and and use that to spin out like rope and and uh, lesser quality yarns but when they actually added I think more price supports and and government uh, program uh, money you know to <laughs> to kind of boost up a new economy that's kind of when it took off and that was in 1905 so mm. um Unfortunately, they added a prison labor aspect to it. <laughs> that was why the, that's how we were able to kind of compete on the world market um, because the, the Salem uh, Penitentiary was the home of one of the larger flax mills. Wow, that's super interesting. So it went on until about the 1960s. 1964, the last flax uh, mill, uh, I think it was a linen mill and can be closed. And it... I think when we, when Shannon and I took these trips over to Europe this summer to find equipment and to talk to other uh, flax and linen producers, 
we were really surprised at the um, the way the linen industry uh, fluctuated with the wars. That was kind of a thing that that kept coming up every single time we talked to someone. <laughs> so I was, mm. that was the continued theme. But it was I I didn't realize that there was so much back and forth uh, in other countries as well, not just our own. So we we had a really vibrant um, flax economy during World War II. And, you know, our only, our only buyer was the military. So, it, you know, we didn't have to really produce high quality. It didn't matter really what the quality was because it was always going to go into something for military use. And then when the war ended um, and all the bombed out uh, flax mills in Belgium and the Netherlands and France um, were being rebuilt they had stored their flax straw for a few years during that war, uh, and they they all needed money. You know, there was absolutely no money in Europe, so they they sold a bunch of flax straw, and that that sort of took the price down considerably worldwide. So mm. we weren't able to compete in that regard, and also we didn't have a classing system in the U.S. that was similar to the European classing system, where we had like a, a really high fine grade, and then. Um, lesser down, and then that would determine what industry you went into, you know, to make uh, fine apparel all the way down to, you know, insulation and animal bedding, like that kind of thing. But uh, mm-hmm. it was, in the U.S., there was, there was only grades for length and a little bit for fineness, but they didn't, they didn't adopt more of the world standards. So that also contributed to our decline in the, in the whole flax industry, because we just we didn't really have the capacity to compete, I think, you know, on the, on a global scale, mm-hmm. if there wasn't a war, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I always think like hemp for victory, like that kind of campaign, it was sort of that way, like, you know, grow, grow a little plot of flax here and there to help out the war effort. But they had a very um, concerted campaign. So they had a lot of farmers growing flax at so the height of it. It was 18,000 acres in Oregon. Wow. That's Which is a, a huge amount. Huge mm-hmm. amount. Yeah. It's a huge burst uh, for an economy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, we were the only state that commercialized the the actual crop to that level. Although there's lots of... Uh, flocks was grown all over the place. You know, it was grown in Pennsylvania and Kentucky and South Carolina and Minnesota and, you know, all through the Dakotas. The Dakotas still grow um, a majority of our linseed Um uh, but there isn't any fiber flax production any longer. Wow, that's super interesting. You know, I find really often in starting this series, talking with farmers who grow cotton or indigo, that a large part of the reason why a lot of these textiles sort of lost their leverage in the American market is because farmers weren't able to keep up with the price. And I'm just wondering, you know, with this new resurgence of interest in sustainable textiles, do you see um, that there's a door or an opening for sustainable production? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Hands down. Yeah. I just um, I just came from the outdoor retailer show in Denver uh, this last weekend, and there's a there's an internal shift happening in the retailers, uh, you know, general apparel and outdoor retailers about their use of raw materials and where they're coming from and how they can trace them back. And if they can uh, assess the 
overall impact of those raw materials on the environment or human condition or um, uh, longevity of the product. All these different metrics are used and their, their main focus is how can they reduce their impact in general on, on the, the whole supply system from the very first farmers that are growing the raw material all the way to the finished product. And it is, um, it's in, there, there's kind of a rush to find as many things uh, that will bring down their overall impact as they can, <laughs> like mm-hmm. as soon as possible, mm-hmm. you know, like, and uh, so there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of sustainability goals being thrown around, you know, uh, we're going to have all of our cotton that we use going to be certified organic by 2020, where all of our, um, you're going to have every product with a life cycle analysis by 2025, uh, that kind of thing. And, and a lot of um, recycling is happening throughout uh, the entire supply chain from using uh, recycled fibers that are coming directly from the factory or they're coming post-consumer. And um, like Reprieve was there. They're the ones that uh, take the water bottles and re-spin them, crush them down, turn them into pellets and re-spin it to recycled um, polyester products. So there, there's so many uh, projects like that happening in the industry that this is a fantastic time to be doing sustainable fiber or to uh, be investing in that kind of new, well, it's not really new really, you know, like I guess old way of doing fiber. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. It all comes back around, but it's like, everyone's talking about, oh, you have to do sustainable fiber. I'm like, are you, so you just mean you just want to grow it like the old way, like that, and you want to process it the old way instead of using all these harsh chemicals. And, um, and yeah, that's basically what it is. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very full circle. (laughs) Oh yeah. It's very funny like that. So, um, there's, yeah, it's a real push right now. And and it's a question of where they're going to find all that raw material. You know, if they, Mm -hmm. they haven't put a lot of time and investment in developing a supply chain that has a sustainable fiber component, then it's it's almost it's, it's difficult to create that out of the thin air instantaneously, you know. And I, I think that that's what the textile world is used to, is sort of instantaneous results. And if they don't like the results they get, they just move to a different mill, or they you know work with a different supplier. But in this case, you have there's so few people doing it that you don't really have that opportunity. So there's a, a necessity for working closer with the suppliers that are involved in. In, uh, in making the product and understanding what's, what is possible, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot of, and I work in certification for textiles, so I have, I, I use all of these different parts of my life and sort of build this picture of what's happening, but I was, <laughs> there, it seemed as if um, that people have to, in the, in the supply chain for textiles, understand the limitations. And, and work with that instead of creating, you know, how designers start at the, at the top of like, this is the dream of what I want to do. And then they start looking for suppliers to fit that dream. And it's more so that you have to understand what is, what is possible out of those natural fibers and then, um, then start working from the other direction. So you have to have a closer relationship with your, with your raw materials in general and understand where they come from and what their characteristics are and how they can work for you, but not necessarily how you can ask so much of them that they, they can't do anything. <laughs> it's just, I don't know. It's just a different way of looking at it in the textile world. Um, 
it seems like the buyers and designers uh, have much more, oh, they have just more interest in making a very unique product. And, um, and you can definitely do that with, with natural fiber, sustainable fiber, same thing, but it doesn't, um, you just need to be more aware of the original characteristics of the product. You know, and instead of going out and asking, can you make this thing? Can you make this thing that's, you know, intelligent and can wick away your moisture at all these different parts in your body and <laughs> send you back, <laughs> send you back some kind of reading and <laughs> into your brain. I mean, just like they're so advanced. Everything is so advanced in the textile side that um, using natural fibers brings it back to a, a more base level. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A much more simplified understanding. Exactly. Clothing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I totally identify with that because I went to school. I went to Parsons, so I uh-huh. studied um, alternative fashion strategies. Nice. And I, a few years ago, went to a Black Farmers Conference, and I was, you know, in my mind thinking, oh, hopefully I'll find a cotton farmer or someone who goes this and that. And the realities of everything that that was on the radar for farmers was totally different. And I realized that it was important for me to sort of zero in and like understand what role I play as a designer and to sort of find the medium where I can advocate um, for healthy materials as well as healthy, sustainable environments for farmers. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot mm-hmm. of times people think of sustainability sustainability solely as organics um, and, and, you know, being natural, but sustainability is also something that's cost effective, um, something that considers the environment and the people that are affected by it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and a lot of people really, you know, they, they aren't aware of, of, of what it does take to bring products to market. Oh yeah. Yeah. They're not aware at all. That's, and that, that big gap between the the supplier, the designer, and the consumer is sometimes treacherous. You can't you can't quite <laughs> make a bridge between all of them because they don't speak the same language about what the the original material is. They're not so they, getting them together more often is the best thing. I mean, that's great that you went to the conference because I think it it is wonderful for farmers to meet people on the other end of the supply chain and and see what is. Um, what's desired, you know, in, mm-hmm. in apparel and mm-hmm. to understand that their, their raw material can turn into something, you know, it's, it's beautiful through all stages, but it can be, you know, even more amazing and, and, um, and can be transformed into this really, you know, beautiful product at the end. And, and they don't know enough of that. I mean, what they see is blue jeans, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like Wranglers, you know, <laughs> or so uh, true. Yeah, so that's true. kind of what they're seeing is the you know, oh, my jeans became those Wranglers, or my my cotton became those Wranglers, and um, but beyond that, I don't think they they uh, are in the world enough of fashion and such to see the, the even bigger picture of their their raw material um, and making and. And realizing that they can, they do have a, a lot of commonality, and can you know stretch stretch that gap. But they, um, 
they just need to be approached because farmers are on the farm. You know, that's the, right. <laughs> nope. you only see them at the winter farming conferences. Like the only time I ever see any of my friends is in February. So, <laughs> so they don't, you know, they're not going to like the LA textile show. They're not, right. going, they're not, and they don't understand, you know, they don't really see the, the full impact of what's happening out there in the textile world. So, um, yeah, it's just a really different reality. So the more we can come together, the, I think the better off, you know, we'll be. And there's there's a lot of conferences like that, like the Textile Exchange has an annual conference that brings together farmers and and uh, and all the people in the supply chain right up to the retailer. And that's a that's a great uh, opportunity to meet everybody, you know, involved and really talk about the issues that are inherent in each part of the production. I think that that's where they people don't realize that, you know, we're dealing with a seasonal crop. And so and it doesn't really fall along the lines of what is available for the spring line. <laughs> you know, it's like we're, right. And it's just those sorts of things that come to, that need to come together. It's quite, yeah. Yeah, that's super, that's super interesting. I'm so glad you've provided insight to that. Sort of going back to talking about fiber evolution, can you talk about your project and how you've sort of pull together various farms and various gardens to create your fibers? Mm-hmm. We, um, we have been working with Oregon State University uh, from about, this is our third year with them, and we have a, a trial plot at the organic farm for Oregon State University called Lewis Brown, and this is in Corvallis, Oregon, and we grow out about a half an acre of fiber there each year uh, using a bunch of different methods to sort of see what kind of quality we can get, um, mostly for redding. So the, one of the stages for actually getting the fiber from the flax plant is to, to leave it to rot for, for about a month to two months on the ground. And the microbes that were in the soil uh, to grow the plant are also there to break it down and that releases the fiber bundles from the stem and we have there's a lot of uh, different theories and practices about redding and so we have done uh, several different trials in the last couple of years trying to figure out the best time to pull the plant the best time how long to leave it on the ground when to bale it all these different aspects to it so um, that's kind of the Lewis Brown has become sort of the central focus for trials and then we also this year had our seed breeder, uh, Jennifer, um, planted out uh, nine crosses of uh, seeds that we're developing for fiber flax in Oregon at that location as well. And then we have um, my farm, which is uh, out in the coast range of Oregon. It's, kind, it's, more like the, it's more like the climate we would see in France. Like we have really cool mornings, a lot of marine influence because we're only about 20 miles from the coast. Mm. Um, and the and the fog stays until like eleven or so, and then it's burned off. So it's really cool, and and flax likes that you know those cool mornings. So we've had some really nice crops here, and we just did a seed crop of one fiber flax uh, last year, and then in Salem, outside of Salem, which is kind of mid-state on the west side, there um, we have we're working with a grower, uh, Ralph Fisher, and his place is mostly does grains and grass seed. And he has a history of growing flax and working with flax producers from 
the nineties on. So he's, he's basically our, our main <laughs> agronomist kind of person that, that has a longstanding relationship with the, the farming community in the Willamette Valley mm-hmm. and for the conventional side, you know, and he, um, he's been rotating flax through his field. So we the first year we had four acres and then last year we did 14 on a different field that he's got outside of uh, Salem. And we were kind of studying the impact of irrigated versus non-irrigated flax. And his place is non-irrigated. Mine is irrigated and so is Lewis Brown. So we've been um, going back and forth to see how well the crop does in those conditions. And then also he's a conventional farmer. And so he um, is using his conventional practices and we're comparing those to organic practices used uh, at my farm in Lewis Brown, which are certified. So uh, there's a lot of data we've been collecting and it's, and it's really been fascinating because we see how, well, basically how climate change is impacting fiber crops you know, at a fundamental level. So we, uh, but 14 acres of uh, crop that he planted in the spring, we lost because there was no rain at all Mm. (laughs) from the entire spring and all the way half through summer until we got, I think, an inch in June and that was it. So uh, there's an old adage that if you, if you plant fiber flax before April 15th in Oregon, you're doing great because you'll, you'll, the entire crop will basically grow up just on the spring rains. And it's a very short season crop here. It's only 100 days. It's mm. a really short season, and, um, which makes it a nice rotation. You know, with other uh, crops during the year, you don't necessarily miss out on, on a full season of wheat and stuff. And that uh, is really appealing to farmers to add more rotational crops in general into their cycle. So, um, so we always thought that, you know, (laughs) before climate change was so impactful, which is basically like immediately we were like, oh yeah, this is no problem. We'll just plant it really early spring and it'll be great. And it wasn't at all. It would, it just toasted. (laughs) Did you find differences between the irrigated and non-irrigated? It was that the difference? Um, there is a difference in quality with irrigated and non-irrigated if you water too much. And so there's, there has to, flax likes a consistency. It doesn't like huge jumps or spikes in temperature, and it doesn't like to be um, waterlogged instantaneously. So you'll, there's the, the worry that it's going to lodge if it grows too quickly. It'll grow up so fast that it won't have the strength to hold its own stem up, so it falls over. This will happen with too much water or too much um, nitrogen, uh, lodging mm. in grass seed is really uh, an issue, and so they'll, they'll try and uh, accommodate that by doing variable rate um, fertilizer spreading so that they are only applying uh, nitrogen to parts of the field that need it instead of the entire field as a whole, you know, like it's, a, it's mm-hmm. more um, specific. And so they, so there's a lot of different aspects to it. What we've noticed with the the irrigated is if you are just watering about an inch a week until just after bloom when the first bulls start, then it's, um, then you're pretty good. You're doing pretty good. And we also realized uh, on our trips to Europe to see these flax producers that everybody grows a winter crop (laughs) and they all Mm. start in October or November and grow an overwintering um, 
you know, not, not as much as the spring crops, like in um, land size, but um, yeah, they'll all grow a winter plot and then harvest that in June of the following year. And basically as risk mitigation to climate change, because they were seeing the same thing happening is that they were not getting any spring rains. And so they were losing crops, uh, which would have been traditionally planted in uh, March and April in their areas in Europe. So we realized that, wait, we really better start doing the same thing. <laughs> we're going to be in trouble too. Wow. <laughs> we started. So this year we, we planted out um, just a few trials at different farms uh, for winter cropping. And we did the crosses that were collected in the summer are now planted out at a farm in Albany for the winter time. So there's 460 crosses or 60 plots there. And then um, we I have maybe about like, I don't know, a hundred feet worth of bed space for a winter uh, crop here. And yeah, so that's kind of how we're sort of trying to uh, trying to see what is going to be the best time of year to grow. And I, and I think the answer is going to be all times of year because we're going to have to be careful because I just don't, there's just no probability there. So you can't say like, oh yeah, next year we'll be fine. We'll have plenty of rain. There's just, there's nothing. I mean, yeah. Not anymore. Are you a part of bringing the fiber to the consumer? Do you process your flax? That's our that's our project in general is to to basically acquire enough machinery in Oregon to actually uh, make a hackled uh, product, which would be like a combed top in terms of wool production. Like, mm. it's hard to describe exactly but you're like looking you're trying to get something that's just the stage before spinning so it's uh so it's like a long snake of fiber you know and and everybody calls it a different thing like it's it could be a roving um we called it hackled sliver other people call it you know uh top top roving like that kind of stuff and that um that's sort of the final product that we could do or we're capable of doing here in Oregon and then that um, that fiber would be sent to a spinning mill um, that we hope to partner with in California, or um, maybe they'll even build one up here in Oregon. Um, there's a it seems like there would be enough infrastructure already in place in the U.S. with small modifications that we could get to actual woven linen. So that's that's our like dream you know, pie in the sky kind of dream <laughs> so, as though we'd be able to have woven linen. But I don't think that Shannon and I um, in our capacity will be like the people to have that final product. You know, I think that we'll be partnering with a lot of different companies to get it to that stage. But what we could come up with feasibility wise is to actually have a uh, processing mill here in Oregon that would take the redded fiber from the farmers and then, uh, break off the stem through the, the scutching process, clean up the fibers, and then um, uh, draft them out into hackled, uh, spinnable sliver. Mm. Those are all the crazy terms involved. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. They're very interesting terms. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and I'm talking about, like, this is like I'm speaking something, some other language. <laughs> but it's really... Yes. I, I saw online that you were talking about specific machinery that you could use on your farm that's only available in Europe. Is that what you're referring mm -hmm. to when you're talking about slivering? Yes. Well, um, 
there the thing about fiber flax is that it it is best if pulled directly from the ground instead of cut so like uh, other cereal crops you would go in with a swather and cut just five or six inches above the ground and the combine would take off the head of the seed that you're which the crop is usually you know grown for and then um and then the rest of the stem would just sort of be left in a heap in a windrow in the field and that that was that would be considered like the unusable part and everybody would be after the seed and in this case the fiber flax is starts from about an inch and a half above the root all the way to the first uh, branching and so it can be up to like a meter long and that's the what you're after the seed is sort of secondary and this, in this case, you're, you need a machine that actually can pull it out of the ground instead of cutting it because it's a very strong fiber and, um, and really gums up a lot of machines for that reason. And so the, it developed in Europe, and so, I mean, de- actually developed in the U.S. and Canada and Europe sort of all about the same time was this machine that was called a flax puller. And it, um, it has, they're really interesting looking. If anybody goes on YouTube and looks up flax puller, they're like so fun to watch because they basically go through the field with these like teeth in the front, like fingers, actually, they look like fingers and they have belts on the fingers and they run right at the, um, like right at ground level. Mm-hmm. And the belts are going so fast that they're actually grabbing the uh, flax stem and pulling it, yanking it right out of the ground. Mm-hmm. And then the system on the flax puller machine lays all the flax parallel and then sends it off the back on a conveyor belt and lays it flat on the ground in a windrow, all parallel to each other, right behind the machine as it goes by. So it's really amazing to watch. It's like a little stream of flax, like a river of flax going up and over this machine. And then then it's left in the field for about a month on one side and then turned with a turner to the other side. Same kind of machine, but with without the pulling mechanism and that just flips it over and then it's bailed um, after it's completed the redding process and then when it's taken to the scutching mill then it's unrolled in the bale and there's like uh, a row of cylinders called breakers and they're close together and when you run the flax stem through it it sort of it uh, crushes or breaks it in many different uh, parts and the the unusable, well, not unusable, but the waste product, the shives fall through, and that's kind of the inner pithy part of the mm-hmm. stem. And then the fiber is released, and that's the outer stem. So it's, though all those machines are not made in the U.S. <laughs> None of them are in North America mm-hmm. at all. So we have to, so uh, that was part of our investigation this year, was to go to Belgium and France and the Netherlands and start talking to people that, the manufacturers of those machines and see what we could actually get, you know, what was available, mm-hmm. how much it would be and, and uh, where it was located. And then, and then we met uh, a group of manufacturers that actually make the scutching machine. And so there's at a point in the U S we had all of this machinery, you know, we had like everything we had 14 mills were processing in Oregon and, through, you know, bad economic times and liquidation and such, I would say probably 99% of everything was sold, wow. <laughs> sold for scrap. <laughs> and it's totally different in Europe where it, you can walk into mills and they 
it will be like somebody just walked off of the job. Like it's, there's still, everything's there. Like it's just so different. So looking for machinery that still existed from the past and in this economy has been very difficult and almost near impossible. And haven't really found hardly anything that was left over. So um, whereas in Europe you can, you know, there's, there's mills that are still producing from the 1817, 1600s and, and such. So they, they still have all that old machinery around. They've already, you know, they've modernized, obviously, but um, there's still a lot of that stuff there. So it's, uh, we're kind of starting at ground zero, you know, when we're, we're starting back with flax. Where in Europe, if somebody wanted to pick up a flax mill again, it wouldn't be such a hard uphill battle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I would still have accessibility to all these things. But uh, here we don't, so <laughs> it's kind of funny like that. But in the past, when they've tried to revive uh, fiber flax, like uh, with other programs at Oregon State University, they amassed a, a lot of growers and, uh, and got to the point where they were producing, pulling and turning and baling redded flax and uh, storing it. And then the thought was, okay, now we're going to go find the scutching mill, you know, so we can actually process this flax into fiber. And that never happened. Wow. So it, uh, it sort of, farmers, you know, were, you know, obviously upset about it. <laughs> they were, and they did. And uh, the flax bales just sat in their barns until, you know, 10 years later, they were like, well, we got to make some room for something else. And they just pulled them out and burned them and, oh, or mulched them. And uh, it, it just didn't go as far as it could. I think maybe because it was, uh, it's a pretty hefty price tag, you know, to, to open a mill. Mm-hmm. And, um, and at that time, I think the natural fibers market, you know, in the nineties wasn't as appealing as it is right now. And there was still so there still is so much use of polyester in general and, um, synthetic fibers in the textile industry, but it, uh, there's so many different things you can do with flax. And so it, I feel like there could have been more effort to to look into other like industrial purposes for for that flax that was grown in Oregon in the 90s but it did not go anywhere so they um so we have met several farmers that were part of that original group and uh we used the the information and and writings of the professor that was at OSU at the time and did a lot of this research and we work with uh several team members that knew that professor he had he had died in the past but that knew him and worked with him. Our seed breeder um, worked with him, and the seed manager that uh, we're working with at OSU is also involved in those projects. So we get to sort of pick up, you know, the the thread of what was happening in the past, and take it to another level where we're where we know that there is a market for for this fiber out in the, the broader textile world. And so it's um, yeah, I think we have a a, a different relationship when uh, you know with what can happen than they did at OSU then. So it's, it's exciting. It's exciting that a lot of the work has been done, you know, and we don't necessarily have to show that fiber flax can grow well here because it has in such a large, you know, large percentage of the, the acreage here already. So it's like, Hey, all right, we're already ahead of the game, mm-hmm. but um, for machinery, we're not ahead of the game at all. So I I also saw online that you guys are looking for ways to pull funding to get the machinery. Did you want to talk about that or let our listeners know how they could partake in helping you guys getting the funding that you're looking for? Yeah, we um 
we had an Indiegogo campaign and that has, uh, it ended last week, maybe a week and a half ago. Oh, wow. And yeah, <laughs> we were, that's all right. We, <laughs> we raised several thousand dollars to be able to fix a puller that, um, was imported from Belgium probably in the mid eighties, I mm -hmm. think, and used at OSU for a bunch of trialing. And that uh, it had been donated to a historical society outside of Portland because it's like an ag historical society. They have a big ag uh, warehouse full of all these old machines mm -hmm. and stuff. And uh, and we had we've talked to the historical society and, and asked if we could get that old puller working. Can we use it on uh, on the fields at the beginning of this uh, project? And they were like, absolutely. So that's um, that's been a great connection. And so our next um, step is to actually take our our little team of uh, interested engineers and manufacturing people up there and start looking at the puller and figuring out how we can get it up and running for next season. And then um, we, I mean, yeah, we're definitely open to discussing any kind of investment opportunity um, for getting machinery here. And we have, um, we work with a consultant in uh, Saskatchewan who, where they grow a lot of flax and he, um, we're actually using some of his seed varieties uh, from many years ago and they Saskatchewan is just it's an amazing spot they have they grow quite a bit of hemp and a lot of linseed and so they have um, a lot of uh, information and research has already been done about how to process the plants and and what kind of products you can get from each stage of the production and so we have been working with him and he's going he's helping us uh, put together our bigger budget for the mill so that's kind of where we're, we're at right now. I mean, we definitely, anybody who wants to contact us about helping out, I'm more than happy to talk to them. Um, I think that we'll probably restructure our business, you know, in the next year or so to um, to be able to sell shares off of that and, and then uh, gather more funds toward actually, you know, starting the mill, building the mill and mm -hmm. such. And then... Um, we also are sponsored by Patagonia uh, as at the very beginning of the seed stage. And our seed program, breeding program, is funded through them. That's awesome. So, yeah, it's fabulous. We've uh, been able to do quite a bit with the money they've given us to actually sort of develop the protocols for farmers and develop seed varieties, get things uh, going with the, the trial plots and yeah, just all the kind of the beginning stages and such as uh, been, they've been a part of. How are you able to get to get sponsored by Patagonia? We work through Fibershed and so then we're, kind, we're in partnership with them on uh, the Flax, uh, Fiberflax project. And in that way, um, we have our 501c3, uh, I can't even say it, <laughs> 501c3, there you go. <laughs> Um, <laughs> umbrella, I guess, through them, and then uh, then Fire Pacific Northwest Fibershed is is um, an affiliate. So it's sort of all three of us working together to on this specific project. Each of us have a little portion of it, and um, I think that the next phase will be gathering enough funds to um, to get the rest of the machinery um, imported from Europe, and there's a there's so many different avenues that can branch out from this project. I mean, we could, 
inspire some machinists in Oregon to start manufacturing our own machinery here, which would be fantastic. You know, and then it would be available for other farmers to use instead of constantly importing from Europe. And it, uh, I think with the upswing in natural fibers, the, the linen industry is definitely going to see more action than it has in the, the past decade. And there's a lot of other countries coming back on for linen production, like Egypt. And they're, um, they're buying a lot of the older machinery and fixing it up um, for use in mechanizing their own linen industry. And so we'll, we'll need to be manufacturing our, our own uh, harvesting equipment and such here in this country uh, to be able to compete with that. Um, there's a finite amount of harvesting equipment out there. <laughs> so, so it's kind of a race to find it. <laughs> yeah. And do you have any new projects that you're working on that you'd like to talk about? Um, we are kind of delving into the archival side of uh, linen in Oregon. We've Everywhere we go, we meet somebody else that has some story about growing up, you know, here in the 50s and, oh, I had a linen field next to my farm or I was, I was my job to go out and pull you know, flax every summer. Um, I worked at one of the mills, like all those kind of stories have been coming out. It's really fascinating. So we're actually tomorrow we go meet with um, one of the master weavers in Eugene, the guild there. And, and she has a collection of, of uh, linen articles from the past. And we're talking about trying to incorporate them into an exhibit at one of the, um, the local uh, heritage centers that actually is housed in an, in an old wool mill in Salem. So I think that uh, making, kind of bringing the that old process back to life here in Oregon sort of puts our project in the forefront of people's minds about reviving linen, and they're like, oh, yeah, I didn't realize it used to be here, and they're like, oh, yeah, it was here, <laughs> like, it was in a big way, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing, and it's just, it's really cool, everyone I meet has some kind of, you know, connection to it, especially the older farmers, so it's been really fun, so that's kind of um, the wintertime activity, um, working on our broader mill plan, and then uh, and then we're doing a couple presentations and in local areas around here, showing the production of flax. We have um, a collection of redded flax bundles that we're storing at a farm in Corvallis, and those we're going to then use for uh, demonstrations for hand processing, so that uh, participants can actually spin linen, you know, as the final product, and uh, and then. We do a lot of work with guilds as well, like in that, and I would love to inspire some, I don't know, guild projects where we are be able to supply the raw material and then ha ask them to, you know, make whatever they'd like to out of uh, that linen, spun linen, and then showcase that as part of an overall historical exhibit. So that's kind of how we would draw on everybody. But it's really, everybody is excited about the the prospect of growing your own fiber like it's just such a fun thing to do I guess you know because <laughs> it is it's so beautiful at all the stages like it's just and we we sell a lot of small packs of seed to backyard growers and and so I feel like we're going to see a lot of flax and linen plots popping up all over <laughs> and all these little backyards and stuff and, and people harvesting their own fiber and that's definitely a fiber shed model, you know, inspiring people to to use what grows the best right where they're at, you know.
Yeah, I mean, I'm super inspired. I spoke with another flax farmer um, whose farm is in um, Northern California. And I'm like thinking like, maybe, maybe I'll try some this year, you know, maybe as a winter crop, Um, we'll see. Um, But do you have any advice or words of wisdom to share with weavers or textile enthusiasts who want to support farmers? Um, there, I think that the fiber shed network is, is just, I don't know, one of the most phenomenal (laughs) textile, like back to the land kind of textile movements that we've seen in a long time. And it, it pushes, um, the idea of, of really getting to know what's available locally and what grows well there. And instead of, um, you know, importing all of our fibers in and, and the craft movement is, is so strong in this country. It's just amazing. And I feel like they have a lot of power that they don't really use, Mm -hmm. you know, that they can, they could say like, yeah, we want this, we want that. And, um, and it might, you know, come right out of the market for them. So I have, you know, especially knitting. Oh my goodness. It's just amazing how much is happening. So I think that getting involved with fiber shed in your area, and there's, it seems like there's an affiliate in practically every state, and uh, and understanding what kind of uh, projects they're developing in in your own backyard and and how you can participate. There they have a lot of, um, you know, production days and harvest days, and go meet the farmer and you know come out to the field for field tours and and uh, those kind of activities, which are just fabulous for really connecting everybody together. And we have met so many people through Shannon's work and then then speaking about uh, fiber flax at different events that um, that they're just there's a lot being made out there. That's just really inspirational, like just incredible stuff. <laughs> like you're like, wow, this is so cool. So it's uh, I think that's a great way for for people to get involved in their local area. And and there's there seems to be a lot of like um impact investing around textiles Mm -hmm. and that might be another avenue if you beyond just you know participating in like a field day and such but um but actually moving toward putting your money where you want to see a development in sustainable fibers Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. like um i there's there seems to be quite a few like crowdfunding and indiegogo campaigns i'm thinking of like the cotton mill in california I just read around, uh, read another uh, campaign overview by this place in Bristol in England that wanted to weave their own um, plaid from like local sheep and local dyes. And I was like, oh yeah, this is exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> you know, it's like limited edition and you know, you, you put in your, I don't know, hundred pounds or something and you get a meter of cloth. Like it just, it's really neat. It's, it's, everything is so unique and so specific to place. It, um, it's like where we were with the food movement, you know, five years ago, like we're the terre de noir, mm. like the, like the taste of the, the taste of the land in wine or in the vegetables or the meat you're growing, that kind of stuff is kind of being translated into the fiber and the cloth of the land. Yeah, I totally agree. Like I definitely see that this is sort of the beginning of people really having critical conversations about textiles in the same way that they talk about food sovereignty and things of that nature. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah, the grow your own clothes movement is really gaining some ground 
and uh, and it's just amazing. It's very inspirational, and it and I think it also well just sort of slows us down to the the amount of work <laughs> that it takes to make something yeah. that <laughs> intricate and that complex. Um, that you start looking at everything else in your life, and you're like, oh, I'm going to buy that T-shirt for like five dollars. Do I should I do that? Maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> just, you know, right. start questioning like, gosh, I know what it takes to make that T-shirt now. Oh, boy, I don't know if I can do it. <laughs> it's just, it, yeah, it really get, puts a different perspective on uh, just our use, you know, and, and the things that we use every day and around us and, and how they're made. And, and just like it did with food, you know, that we could see, okay, I, you know, I want to be more conscious about my, my buying habits and and hopefully that'll, you know, translate into fiber and, and textiles for people because it's really, it's vital. I mean, it's vital that we we uh, consume less in general, and then and can and if we do consume, that we buy quality that will last a lot longer. So that's definitely mm-hmm. a mark of the of the crafter movement is to buy quality. Yeah. Where can people go on social media and the internet to follow your work? We have a pretty active website. Uh, it's uh, www.fibre-evolution.com. And we constantly update the website with uh, new projects going on and, and events where we'll be speaking or um, demonstrating hand processing for fiber flax. And then we're also on Instagram at fibre-evolution-pnw, Pacific Northwest. Let me just make sure that that's actually the <laughs> right one. I always do that. I'm thinking, is that really the right Instagram thing? And then we also, <laughs> we're also uh, on Facebook as well. So any any of those avenues, they all crisscross. Um, yeah, it's fiber evolution underscore PNW. Well, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. It's been a very very enlightening conversation. No, it's been great. I really appreciate you reaching out to us. Yeah. Thanks to Tian Chu of Warp and Weave for sponsoring the podcast. Want to cure your color frustrations? Go to Warp and Weave and register for Tian's free mini course about color and weaving. Learn about color from an expert weaver from the comfort of your own home. Find out more about her in-depth courses on color and weaving there as well, and learn how to design beautiful handwoven projects using color and weave structure. Turn your color frustrations into delight at www.warpandweave.com. Before we sign off, one last request to consider supporting this podcast as a monthly donor if it's making you happy. Right now, this podcast is costing me more to produce than I can make from my lovely sponsors, And if we could get a good group of monthly supporters, it would go a long way to keeping this podcast sustained far into the future. $5 a month would be paying $125 per episode, and $10 a month would be paying $250 per episode. If this podcast is worth that to you, and if you can afford it, perhaps you'll consider chipping in. You can sign up for a one-time donation or a monthly donation at www.gistyarn.com slash podcast and clicking on the donate button. We're going to take the next two weeks off for the holidays, and I'll be rerunning two of my favorite episodes. Check back in January for all new episodes, and thank you so much, dear listeners, for bringing us into your ears, your weaving studios, your cars, your gyms, wherever you're listening. 
it really means so much to us that you're out there. Happy weaving. That's a wrap. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. Angela is super knowledgeable about flax, and I'm so excited to see what is in store for the future of flax in their region. Links to Angela, as well as Fiber Evolution's website, can be reached by visiting our show notes at www.justyarn.com slash episode dash 45. I am wishing you all a very happy holiday season and sending super positive energy into starting this new year. I look forward to the podcast lineup in 2019, and I think you all will enjoy some of the conversations that both Sarah and I have in store. So until next time, happy weaving! Mm-hmm.